Chapter Sixteen of Malcolm Sage, Detective, by Herbert George Jenkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Sixteen: The Great Fight at the Olympia. One. Never had the Olympia seen such a crowd as was gathered to watch the fight between Charlie Burns of England and Joe Jefferson of America. Never in its career of hybrid ugliness had it witnessed such excitement. For thirty-six hours the wildest rumours had been current. Charlie Burns had broken down, run away, committed suicide, and refused to fight. He had broken a leg, an arm, a finger, and had torn more tendons than he possessed. He had sprained ankles, wrung withers, been overtrained, had contracted every known disease, in addition to manifesting a yellow streak. The atmosphere was electrical. The spectators whispered among themselves, exchanging views and rumours. The most fantastical stories were related, credited, and debated with gravity and concern. If some ill-advised optimist ventured to question a particularly lugubrious statement, he was challenged to explain the betting, which had crept up to six to one on Jefferson offered, with no takers. The arrival of the Prince of Wales gave a welcome vent for pent-up excitement. Accustomed as he was to enthusiastic acclamation, the Prince seemed a little embarrassed by the warmth and intensity of his greeting. The preliminary bouts ran their course, of interest only to those immediately concerned, who were more truly alone in the midst of that vast concourse than some anchorite in the desert of Sahara. The heat was unbearable, the atmosphere suffocating. Men smoked their cigars and cigarettes jerkily, now indulging in a series of staccatoed puffs, now ignoring them until they went out. Slowly the time crept on as by the bedside of death. If those ridiculously bobbing figures in the ring would only seize their caperings. Break! Break! The voice of the referee suddenly split through a pocket of silence. Everyone seemed startled. Then the curtain of sound once more descended and wrapped the assembly in its impenetrable folds. The gong sounded the beginning and the end of each round, and so it went on. Mr. Papwith sat in the front row near the prince, smiling, smiling, forever smiling. He was a dapper little man, with a fiery, clean-shaven face, and a fringe of grizzled hair above his ears that gave the lie to the auburn silkiness with which his head was crowned. Next to him was Mr. Dalton, who chatted and smiled, smiled and chatted, but his eyes moved restlessly over the basin of faces, as if in search of an answer to some unuttered question. At length the preliminary bouts were ended. As the combatants had arrived unheralded, so they departed unsung. Although no one appeared to be watching, a sudden hush fell over the assembly. The dramatic moment had arrived. A few minutes would see the rumours confirmed or disproved. Men, seasoned spectators of a hundred fights, found the tension almost unbearable. The M.C. climbed through the ropes and looked fussily about him. He appealed to the spectators for silence during the actual rounds and for the discontinuance of smoking. A black carpet box sealed as if it contained dueling pistols instead of gloves, was thrust into the ring. Men took a last fond draw at their cigars and cigarettes before mechanically extinguishing them. All eyes were directed towards the spot where the combatants would appear. The referee turned expectantly in the same direction. A group of men in flannels and sweaters was seen moving towards the ring. Among them was a sleek, dark-haired man in a long dressing-gown of bottle green. It was Joe Jefferson. Suddenly a great roar burst out, echoing and re-echoing continuously as the group approached the ring and Jefferson climbed through the ropes. Then came another hush. A second group of men was observed approaching the ring. 
There was a shout as those nearest recognized Elf Pond among them. It developed into a roar, then died away as if strangled, giving place to a hum of suppressed inquiry. Everyone was either asking or looking the same question. Where is Burns? Elf Pond and his associates moved to the ringside as if bound for a funeral. Their gloom seemed suddenly to pervade the whole vast concourse. Men talked to one another mechanically, their eyes fixed upon the group. There was a strange hush. The men reached the ringside and stood looking at one another. The audience looked at them. What had happened? None seemed to notice three men moving down the opposite gangway towards the ring. The man in the centre was muffled in a heavy overcoat that reached to his heels. A soft felt hat was pulled down over his eyes. One or two spectators in their immediate neighbourhood gave them a hasty, curious glance. Suddenly Elf Pond gave a wild whoop, and, breaking away from his fellows, dashed towards the three strangers. In a moment the overcoat and muffler were thrown aside, and the hat knocked off, revealing the fair-haired and smiling Charlie Burns. Gripping Burns's hand, Elf Pond broke down. Tears streamed down his battle-seared features, and he sobbed with the choking agony of a strong man. Then suddenly everything became enveloped in a dense volume of sound. Men and women stood on their chairs and waved frantically, madly, anything they could clutch hold of to wave. The whole Olympia appeared to have gone mad. Noble peers, grave judges, sedate generals, and austere philosophers acted as if suddenly bereft of the restraining influences of civilization and decorum. Hugged and fondled by his seconds, Burns reached the ring and climbed into it. The black carpet box was opened, the man's hands bandaged, the gloves donned. Still the pandemonium raged, now dying down, now bursting out again with increased volume. Jefferson and Burns shook hands. The referee stood in the middle of the ring, and, with arms extended aloft, appeared to be imploring the blessing of heaven. The crowd, however, understood, and the great uproar died down to a hum of sound. Then, for the first time, it was noticed that, in place of the habitual smile that had made Burns the idol he was, there was a grim set about his jaw that caused those nearest to the ring to wonder and to speculate. Charlie Burns's battle-smile had become almost a tradition. "'If he'd only fight more and box less,' Alf Pond would say complainingly, "'he'd beat the whole blinkin' world with one hand.' Suddenly, a hush fell upon the assembly, a hush as pronounced as had been the previous pandemonium. The referee took a final look round. Behind Burns, Alf Pond could be seen sponging his face over a small bucket. He was once more himself. There were things to be done. Almost before anyone realized it, the gong sounded. The fight had begun. God! The exclamation broke involuntarily from Alf Pond as he dropped the sponge and gazed before him with wide staring eyes. He's fighting! he cried, almost dancing with excitement. Did ever you see the like, Sandy? But Sandy's eyes were glued upon the ring. His hands and feet moved convulsively. He was a fighter himself. Discarding his traditional opening of boxing with swift defensive watchfulness, Charlie Burns had darted at his man. Before anyone knew what was happening, his left crashed between Jefferson's eyes, a blow that caused him to reel back almost to the ropes. Before he could recover, a right hook had sent him staggering against the ropes themselves. For a second it looked as if he would collapse over them. Pulling himself together, however, he strove to clinch, but Burns was too quick for him. Stepping back swiftly, he fainted with his left, and Jefferson, expecting a repetition of the first blow, raised his guard. A white right arm shot out to the mark, and Jefferson went down with a crash. 
the timekeeper's voice began to drone the monotonous count. At eight, Jefferson gathered himself together. At nine he was on his feet. Once more, Burns was upon him, and Jefferson saved himself by clinching. It was clear that he was badly shaken. Three times during the first round Burns floored his man. The onlookers were mad with excitement. Back in his own corner, Charlie Burns was sitting, a hard-set look in his eyes, his jaw square and firm. Alf Pond fussed about him like a hen over a chick. "'Shut up, Alf. I know what I'm doing,' said Burns sharply. "'He knows what he's doing,' repeated Alf Pond ecstatically. "'Hear that, Sandy. He knows what he's doing. And so does Jeff. I'll lay a pony to a pink pill,' he added. Once more the gong sounded. Once more Burns sprang up and darted at his man. Jefferson tried first to dodge and then to clinch, but without avail. He was unnerved. His strategy and tactics had been planned in view of Burns' usual methods. But here was an entirely different man to deal with. A great fighter. Twice more Jefferson went down, taking a count of nine on each occasion. He seemed to share with the spectators the knowledge that there would be no third round. On rising the second time, he seemed determined to change his tactics. He rushed forward, fighting gamely, apparently in the hope of getting a lucky knockout blow. Without giving an inch, Burns threw off the blows, and, fainting with his left, crashed his right full on the point of his opponent's jaw. Jefferson's hands fell, and for a second he stood gazing stupidly before him. Then his knees sagged, and, with a deliberation that seemed almost intolerable, he crashed forward on his face, one arm outstretched as if in protest. Again the timekeeper's voice was heard monotonously counting. Burns turned to his corner without waiting for the conclusion of the count. He knew the strength behind that blow. 2. Later that night, just as Big Ben was taking breath preparatory to his supreme effort, Malcolm Sage was seated in his big armchair, smoking a final pipe before bed, and turning over in his mind the happenings of the day and the probable events of the morrow. His train of thought was suddenly interrupted by a hammering at the outer door of his chambers, followed by the sound of loud and hilarious voices as Rogers answered the summons. A moment later the door of the sitting-room burst open, and there flowed into the room Charlie Burns and his entourage, all obviously in the best of spirits. In the background stood Rogers, with expressionless face, looking towards his master. Malcolm Sage rose and shook hands with Burns, Mr. Dalton, and Mr. Papwith, Alf Pond, and his assistants. "'Sorry, Mr. Sage,' cried Burns, with a laugh, "'but the boys wouldn't wait, although I told them calling time was four till six. And they laughed again, the laugh of a man who has not a care in the world. He also gripped Malcolm Sage's hand with a heartiness that made him wince. The others in turn shook hands in a way that caused Malcolm Sage to wonder why America had not long since ceased to be a republic.' The men dropped into chairs in various parts of the room, and Rogers, who had disappeared at the signal for Malcolm Sage, now returned with a tray of glasses, siphons, and decanters. Soon the whole company was drinking the health of Malcolm Sage with an earnestness which convinced him that on the morrow there would be trouble with Colonel Sappinger, who lived above and cherished Carlyle's hatred of sound. "'And now, Mr. Sage,' said Alf Pond, "'we want to know how you found Charlie. He won't tell us anything.' "'Wonderful, I call it,' he added, and there was a murmur of assent from the others as they proceeded to light the cigars that Rogers handed round. "'It was not very difficult,' said Malcolm Sage, stuffing tobacco into his pipe from a terracotta jar beside him. As he applied a light to the bowl, the others exchanged glances. 
From the first, he continued, it was obvious that some message or letter had been conveyed to our friend Burns. He gazed across at the champion, who looked uncomfortable. As he had not mentioned the fact to any of his friends, continued Malcolm Sage, a little slyly, it seemed obvious to assume that there was a lady in the case. Alf Pond looked reproachfully at Burns, who reddened beneath the united gaze of seven pairs of eyes. That the appointment had been for the evening, proceeded Malcolm Sage, was obvious from the fact that Burns disappeared in the blue suit he always changed into after the day's work. Alf Pond looked across at Mr. Dalton, nodding his approval of the reasoning. "'It was Kitty, or I thought it was,' burst out Burns. "'She said something terrible had happened, and that she must see me,' he added. Kitty Graham was shortly to become Mrs. Charlie Burns, but during the period of training she had been rigorously excluded from all intercourse with her fiancé by order of the autocratic Alf Pond. The meeting was arranged for the further side of the large clump of rhododendrons which acted as a screen, continued Malcolm Sage. When Burns arrived there, he saw a girl standing a little distance away. Before he could reach her, however, he was seized and a chloroformed pad held over his mouth. The suddenness of the attack dazed him. He did not struggle, but held his breath. He— "'How the blazes did you know that, Mr. Sage?' burst out Burns. "'You are always a quick thinker in the ring,' said Malcolm Sage, "'and you were a quick thinker then. You smelled chloroform, held your breath, and thought. It was a sort of instinctive ring-craft.' "'But you—' began Burns. There were no marks of a struggle where you were seized. You probably realized that your only chance lay in letting the enemy think you were losing consciousness. Burns nodded. Seeing that there was no sign of trouble, continued Malcolm Sage, the principal in this little affair stepped out from where he had been taking cover just at the moment when Burns broke loose and let out. Movement has always a primary attraction for the eye, and Burns got this man full on the nose and ruined it. He also sent him clean into the privet hedge, where he collapsed. "'Who was it?' demanded Elf Pond fiercely. "'There were, however, too many of them for Burns,' continued Malcolm Sage, ignoring the question. They had planned the attack very carefully, each clinging to a limb. Soon they had him unconscious and bound in the car. Then they turned their attention to their leader. "'Yes, but how did you find Burns?' asked Mr. Dalton eagerly. I didn't, said Malcolm Sage. They showed me where he was. But, began Mr. Papwith, whose shiny, clean-shaven face, normally suggestive of a Turner's sunset, now looked like a conflagration. After half an hour's fruitless effort to track the car down side roads, I returned to London as fast as my man could take me, proceeded Malcolm Sage, and I immediately set inquiries on foot as to the betting on the stock exchange at Tattersall's the National Sporting Club, and other places. By three o'clock that afternoon I knew pretty well who it was that had been laying heavily against Burns. That simplified matters. Elf Pond and Burns exchanged admiring glances. As you know, for more than a week previously the betting had made it clear that heavy sums were being laid on Jefferson. In the course of ten days it had veered round from five to four on Burns to nine to two against. As there were no rumours detrimental to his condition or state of health, this could only mean that a lot of money was being put on Jefferson. 
I found out the names of the principal layers and the amounts. I discovered that all were extremely active with the exception of one. That, I decided, was the man with the umbrella. "'Who's he?' demanded Sandy, whose mouth had not ceased to gape since Malcolm Sage began his story. The man Burns knocked out. He had been leaning rather heavily on the handle whilst taking cover behind a holly-bush, and the metal cap at the base of the silk was clearly marked on the ground. He was also holding an unlit cigar in his hand, which he left in the hedge. By a great good chance this was recognized by someone I happened to know as a brand smoked by a certain backer of Jefferson. "'Well, I'm damned!' broke in Alf Pond with intense earnestness. "'So you see, I'd quite a lot to help me. I was searching for a well-dressed man.' "'But how did you know he was well-dressed?' queried Mr. Dalton. "'His footprints showed that he wore boots of a fashionable model,' explained Malcolm Sage. He also carried an umbrella, even on an occasion such as this. I had to look for a well-dressed man who always carried an umbrella, and who smoked large and expensive cigars, and, most important of all, whose nose had been smashed out of all recognition. "'But how could you tell I got him on the nose?' demanded Burns, leaning forward eagerly. "'There was quite a pool of blood beneath the hedge,' explained Malcolm Sage. "'He was probably there for some minutes while his friends were making sure of you, Burns. Blood would not have flowed so generously as a result of a blow from the fist, except from the nose.' "'You're a knockout, that's what you are, Mr. Sage,' said Alf Pond, with admiring conviction. "'I'd never have thought of it all,' he added, with the air of one desiring to be absolutely fair. "'Finally,' continued Malcolm Sage, "'there was the car. It was a large car. A defect in one of the tyres enabled me to determine that by a steel rule. It was obviously heavily laden, and the near-back wheel was out of track.' This fact, of course, was of no help on the high road, where other cars would blot out the track. But if I could show that someone who had been heavily backing Jefferson had a nose badly damaged, and a car with a near-back wheel out of track, in just the same way that this particular wheel was out of track, and that its tyres were the same as those of the car that drew up outside Burns's training quarters, then I should have a wealth of circumstantial evidence that it would be almost impossible to confute. From a friend at Scotland Yard, I obtained the number of the car belonging to the man whom this evidence involved. As Stainton is off the Portsmouth Road, I telephoned to the Automobile Association patrols at Putney Hill, Asher, and Clendon Crossroads. I was told that on the previous evening this particular car was seen going in the direction of Guildford. These patrols take the numbers of all cars that pass. As it had not passed Liz, where the next patrol is stationed, it was another link in the chain. "'Well, I'm blowed!' The exclamation broke involuntarily from Kid. "'As the patrols go off duty at dusk, I could get no further help from them,' continued Malcolm Sage. "'I sent a man to watch Jefferson's training quarters, although I was fairly certain that he and his party were in no way involved.' Malcolm Sage went on to narrate his call upon Nathan Goldschmidt, carefully omitting any mention of the name or address his hearers listened with breathless interest. "'I concluded that they had taken their prisoner to some lonely, empty house,' he explained, "'but there was not time to search all the empty houses in the home counties, so the man with the damaged nose had to come with me in my car, and his friends followed in his.' "'But how did you manage it?' 
gasped Mr. Papwith. "'At first they showed fight,' said Malcolm Sage, "'and threatened to keep me prisoner until after the fight.' "'Gee!' exclaimed Kidd. "'I anticipated some such move, and had instructed my people that unless I were back by half-past four, they were to deliver certain packets to the editors of well-known London papers. In these packets was told the story as far as I had been able to trace it. This I informed them.' "'What did they say to that?' asked Mr. Dalton. They insisted that I telephone, countermanding my orders, but as I explained that I had told my man Thompson he was to disregard any telephone message or written instructions he might receive from me, they realized that the game was up. I also informed them that Inspector Wensdale and two of his men were waiting at my office in anticipation of a possible hold-up. "'Well, I'm blessed!' exclaimed Alf Pond. "'If you ain't it!' "'I pointed out,' continued Malcolm Sage, that, whereas by producing Burns they would have a fight for their money, if the truth became known, not only would their bets most likely be forfeited, but they would probably have to go to law to recover their stake money. I further pledged Mr. Dalton, Mr. Papwith, and Burns not to take any legal action. I rather suspect that in this I was technically conspiring to defeat the ends of justice. "'But weren't you afraid they'd do a double-cross?' asked Burns. They heard me instruct one of my assistants that, unless I were back by nine o'clock that evening, the notes I had written and addressed were to be delivered. Incidentally, the inspector was present, unofficially, of course. "'You ought to be in the ring with a head like that,' said Alf Pond sorrowfully. "'We found Burns fairly comfortable in the wine-cellar of an empty house near Ripley. They had left him food and water and beer. In all probability, on awakening to-morrow morning, had we not found him, he would have discovered the door unlocked and himself no longer a prisoner. Malcolm Sage paused with the air of one who has told his story. "'But why did you keep Papwith and me at Stainton until late this afternoon?' inquired Mr. Dalton. "'In the first instance, to be in charge and to see that Burns's disappearance was kept secret. It was obvious that every endeavour would be made to put a lot of money on Jefferson before the fact became known.' This would lead to rumour, and later to inquiry. Subsequently, I decided that you were both better out of London, as you would have been interviewed, and bound to give something away, in spite of the utmost caution. "'And now, Mr. Sage,' said Mr. Dalton, "'who are the scoundrels?' "'I have promised not to give their names,' was the quiet reply. "'Not give their names!' cried several of his hearers in unison. Malcolm Sage then proceeded to explain that, unless the gang had seen a loophole of escape, they would not have thrown up the sponge. Had exposure been inevitable in any case, they would have brazened it out, knowing that, whatever happened to themselves, Burns could not appear at the Olympia. The knowledge that their identity would not be divulged tempted them to risk the loss of their money. Apart from this, he added, the details I was able to give seemed to convince them that they had either been watched or given away. "'You must remember that they've lost enormous sums of money,' Malcolm Sage went on, "'and there will be another one thousand pounds for St. Timothy's Hospital. "'It was further understood that, if I could discover any one of them had inspired a covering bet, "'I was released from my promise. "'This is why the odds got to six to one. "'Incidentally, they ensured the defeat of their man. "'When Burns entered the ring tonight, it was to fight, not to box.' "'That's true,' said Alf Pond, nodding his head and reaching for another cigar. 
He never fought like it before in all his puff. "'And where were you last night?' inquired Mr. Papwith of Burns. "'In my bed,' said Malcolm Sage. "'And my friend Inspector Wensdale of Scotland Yard and I slept here. Burns has never been out of Wensdale's sight until we handed him over this evening.' "'I've been having police protection,' laughed Burns. "'Still, you didn't ought to have gone two days without doing anything,' said Alf Pond. "'Oh, I had a bit of sparring with Mr. Sage,' said Burns, "'in spite of the glasses. "'If you want to see some pretty footwork, Alf, you get him to put the gloves on.' "'I knew it!' cried Alf Pond, with conviction. Then, turning to the others, "'Didn't I say he ought to have been in the ring?' And Malcolm Sage found relief from the admiring eyes of his guests in gazing down at the well-bitten mouthpiece of his briar. "'Why did you let me think that Jefferson and his crowd were in it?' inquired Burns, with corrugated brow. "'Well,' said Malcolm Sage, slowly, "'as I had put twenty-five pounds on you to steady Pond's nerves, I didn't want to lose it.' And Elf Pond winked gleefully across at Mr. Dalton. End of chapter 16